This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dune Talk. So in case you're just uh, joining us, uh, we're continuing our scene-by-scene uh, review of the Dune uh, movie. So uh, last week we got up, up to around the 50th minute, uh, seen on Getty Prime, and we're going to continue from, from there. Yeah, it's just uh, so much as, as you dig into the movie, so, so much to, to analyze. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to analyzing t- today with the full crew uh, here today with Garen. Hey, it's Garen on Twitter at Dune Companion. Hello, everyone. Johnny Sobchak here. Um, you can probably find me on Twitter if you haven't found me already. Simon here on Twitter and still also as Dowdy. So before we jump into our uh, review, uh, we'll just touch on a small piece of movie news. Dune movie news. So um, one uh, update that we have is that in its uh, third weekend at the domestic box office, uh, Dune has... Uh, grossed another uh, 7.6 million and this was uh, just a 50 percent drop in the second uh, in the third weekend and that's despite uh, losing the you know the premium uh, screens like IMAX um, and in the third weekend uh, or sorry in the eighth weekend overseas it, it also hauled uh, 11.1 million so and then there we're still seeing strong holes that was only minus 48 uh, percent uh, so we've reached a total of 330 million uh, at the global box office as of uh, past Sunday. So, yeah, the, definitely still continuing to to rise in, in there. Uh, Johnny, what what are your thoughts um, at this stage? Yeah, looks really good. As you mentioned, we did lose uh, the premium format, large format screens for the for the most part, IMAX and Dolby and those things because of Eternals. The Marvel machine comes right in, <laughs> you know, less than two weeks. So that's fine. And I think that the numbers are good. Again, as you said, the drops have been consistently positive. They haven't been too bad, even with competition, even with losing those screens. So we, I'll be curious to see what it looks like on this third weekend. Hopefully it maintains that kind of steady decline and it doesn't take a sharper turn it is worth noting that there aren't any big movies, big new movies coming out this week. So that should hopefully benefit it. And Eternals, as we mentioned, that didn't do super well as far as like word of mouth over the last weekend. The reviews, of course, everyone has been talking about it have not been great for that movie. As you mentioned, kind of creeping up. It's in the 80 million, 83, 85 million range, I believe, domestically. And then also it has... Uh, the 330, 340 million worldwide at this point. So it's on track. I mean, we still have Australia, of course, at the beginning of December, which is a decent, you know, little market. And uh, these, you know, we HBO Max is going to go away here sooner uh, than later. So that'll be something that can maybe incentivize people to go back uh, to the theater if they still want to see it. So a lot of variables, but hopefully it'll be pretty close to 100 million domestically, which is a solid number. And then also it'll be pretty close to 400 million or so worldwide uh, as its final total, whenever it gets to that sometime probably in December, beginning of next year. And that's really positive. Again, mentioned it last week, 300 million was the number that we kind of had an idea of reported by the trades before the movie came out in the U S as something that people would be happy with involved in the production. So, you know, almost 400 million is certainly more than 300 million. That's, that's a great, thing and of course that buzz will carry through with award season and all these other things and then the, the home media release as well so yeah and we, we've we've mentioned this uh before but at this stage uh dune is really cementing itself as as the first uh, fourth uh, best performing hollywood film overseas uh this year it likely won't reach godzilla versus uh, kong which is really impressive but of course godzilla versus kong made you know tons of money in in china which uh, which was not the, the case for dune but yeah, lo- looking at this this year overall, I think that uh, at least uh, Legendary and Warner Brothers can be happy with the performance of, uh, of both those uh, movies that they partnered on. Yeah, I have a quick question about that, uh, Johnny or Marcus. How does this compare, or can we not compare this to prior to, to the pandemic? Does this have to be kind of a new measurement of the success of a film, or, or can we base it on uh, films that were released prior to the pandemic? Of course, there's a new standard because there's different theatrical windows and there's still different COVID situations worldwide. And uh, you have 
the HBO Max factor, of course, for some of these films. Other, you know, Halloween Kills had its own streaming thing. And then there's, you know, the things with uh, Cruella and, and some other Disney movies, Jungle Cruise and Mulan in the last year that all had the Disney Plus premiere thing. So, yeah, it's hard to kind of judge on that. That's for them to figure out and know, because a lot of them don't even release the numbers for that and what that means financially. But, uh, you know, I think it's still fine to compare it to some pre-pandemic numbers. You just have to keep in mind um it really it's it's most impressive like with venom 2 for example that movie made just as much as the first one made prior to the pandemic years before the pandemic so that's that was super impressive i think that that was the biggest surprise and the uh maybe not biggest success overall but very impressive domestically and just in general for an opening weekend whereas something like dune if it came out with to 41 million opening weekend before the pandemic it'd be like oh that's not too great but who knows what it would have been like without HBO Max, without the pandemic. It, you know, maybe it would have been 50s or 60s, 70s. Now we just have to look at it for what it is and compare it to pandemic times. It's been the best Warner Brothers movie at the box office in, in many instances and in many different metrics since Joker, essentially. Godzilla versus Kong, is, as Marcus mentioned, made more in China. It's made more, will probably end up making more worldwide overall. But Totally, you know, different situation, different IP, different franchise. Um, this, so this is impressive, I think. Uh, it's But those weekend drops, best since Joker, opening weekend, best since Joker, opening day, all these other things. Best third, I think today it was best or yesterday it was like best third Tuesday since uh, Joker or something like that for Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers is certainly happy. I mean, I think they really couldn't have asked for a better situation and they got their way with the HBO Max deal so that they, there was really no negative for them on that side of it. Yeah, that, that's also reflecting in the in the book sales. So, of course, you know, it's, it's not surprising to see Dune in the bestseller list. But what, one of the uh, metrics that I always like to look at, considering my, my background, is is the, the most read uh, list on Amazon. And Dune has already been uh, topping that for, for a couple of weeks. And that's actually people who are engaging with it, whether it's like the ebook or the, the audiobook uh, version. So it's not just people who are uh, buying it and putting it on their, on their shelf. So let's continue with our scene-by-scene uh, scene, uh, review of the movie. Uh, so last time we, we discussed the the last scene in the movie, which takes place on Giddy Prime, and it's quite a weird scene, and you, we get to see uh, House Harkonnen in situ, and the the, the I guess the the threat of uh, of uh, Baron Harkonnen. Um, so then we return to Arrakis, and uh, we have the strategy meeting, and yeah, and we, we've talked about before how Gurney is a really stern uh, stern presence, you know, especially we saw that in the. Uh, in a training room scene, but he, he also has a, a clear sense of humor. So as, as Paul walks into the room, like Gurney is uh, b- basically uh, saying, oh, there, there's a hero who grabbed a hunter seeker out of the air with, with his bare hands. So basically putting uh, Paul on the, on the spot on his, uh, on his first meeting. And we have a lot of uh, interactions, you know, as Lido enters the room, uh, Tuver Howard doing his calculations and referring, he's, he's found the, the Harkonnen uh, accounting book. Uh, Garen, I'll start with you. What did you take away from this uh, strategy meeting? So again, I, I love the set designs of, of the Arakeen City. Uh, I love this room. I love little things like the chairs are just like levitating. There's no feet, uh, legs on the chairs. Um, the, the, the part of this scene that really strikes me is, and, and it, all four times that I watched it, it got a little more solemn, was seeing the look on uh, Thufur Hawat's face, right? Because everyone laughs at, at Gurney's joke, right, about, about Paul. Uh, grabbing the hunter seeker with his bare hands, but you just see Thufir just, I mean, he doesn't even crack a smile or he doesn't even blink. He's just, he just feels so devastated that it was under his watch that this assassination of, of the young prince about happened, you know? So anyway, that's the thing that really stands out to me. It's, it's the performances of those, those individuals, but I don't know, this is, this is an interesting interaction. You see Leto being, in command, I, I I love Oscar Isaac's performance here. It feels very natural. Um, he's always making some overture to Paul as his son. You know, pat him on the shoulder, or you know, kind of he's trying to get Paul ready for this. You know, I I don't know if he knows exactly what's coming, but he's feeling this is this is the ascension to one day being the the Duke. You know, so he's he's making these little indications to Paul. So. Um, 
yeah, uh, I, I just, I, I think I like all the interactions here and, and uh, the performances. So one scene that we criticized a little bit, I know Marcus, you had an issue of it when they were on Calden still, and they were talking about, Hey Paul, I need you to do this with me before they departed. And I feel like this scene helps build that bridge kind of, Little said, hey, I need you. And now we see it happening. It's his first stretch meeting. I really liked it. Yeah, it was just, uh, again, just a nice little, a moment that you maybe wouldn't see in another movie like this, a big budget sci-fi space opera kind of movie where they're just sitting there. It, it's like, I've seen people <laughs> say that uh, in some elements, like you can feel um, like maybe the Phantom Menace, for example, because in the Phantom Menace, they're just talking about a lot of times they're in these rooms talking about the politics and the supply chains and, and, uh, you know, blockades and things like that. It's very in, in, in that movie, of course, it's very, you know, dry and boring and you don't really care about anything that's going on. And, and also it looks like crap, um, to be honest. And so here though, you have a physical space. It feels, you know, very old and, and lived in and, and uh, the characters have some personality to him, which certainly goes a long way. Um, but yeah. And then I, I also really like the editing as far as the editing goes, how this scene ends and directly leads. It doesn't really end. It just um, kind of runs into them walking out onto the, the like kind of tarmac where there is the spice silos. So there's a great little Easter egg. There's two Easter eggs and the stuff that we're going to talk about today, especially if you put the subtitles on, because after I came home watching it the first time in the theater, I was like, you know, I'm going to rewatch it. I'm going to put the subtitles on, see if I miss anything. So when Duncan lands, we know that whole entire scene, ah, my boy, you know, that. But the other part is he goes up to Paul as they're hugging each other. And he's like, I swear you're getting taller. Paul's like, yeah, and you're smelling worse. Well, there's like a couple Easter eggs there. I wonder if that's just... Stuff that Denis was like, keep it, keep it in post. <laughs> yeah, if you guys put the subtitles on, you'll see something like that. Yeah, I, I liked what, what you, John, said about the editing here, because I think in terms of the, the medium of, of film, I think yeah, they did a good job putting things together. There, there was there's one like scene that, you know, I sort of missed, which was, you know, after the, the meeting in the, in the book, whether they're on the airfield, like Paul actually falls asleep in uh in the in the meeting room and you have like uh duke leto ref reflecting on you, you know like being a father and caring caring for paul uh so that's um yeah so so, so that that's that's one of the things that that i uh, i would have liked to see but i think it 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 made sense how they cut here and yeah like you have that smooth transition directly from the the scene where you already get an idea of what the situation is right because uh tuver how says you know we, we found the accounting book and you know the harcones were were pulling billions of out of here every year, but you know that's not going to be us for a while because we're all this crap equipment that's been uh, been left behind and like state of disrepair, etc. And then they go to the and inspect the harvesters tanks, and there you you already understand the urgency. Like basically, they have to fill all these tanks every twenty five uh, days. And I don't know if, if Simon, you, you thought about that, but um, like I was thinking back to the very original like PC game where you also had that that sort of that uh, time uh, pressure. You know, yes. you, you had to like get things done, and you also had to send spice back to the to the emperor. So that that already like gave the sense of uh, of urgency um, here. And another um, interesting uh, point here is that when when Duncan arrives, and you know he gives uh, Paul. Uh, Paul the hug, and then afterwards he he comes and reports to, to Duke, Duke Lido. Then uh, he he talks about uh, that he's been with the Fremen four weeks. So again, like here here we get to an understanding of how much time has has passed because you know when when Paul first had the conversation in the hangar, it was uh, you know uh, Duncan is going to leave that day, and then like the rest of the family is going to go in two weeks. And here we're already talking like four weeks. So like potentially like it's already been a couple of weeks since they arrived. Uh, in Arrakis and, you know, it's been chaos, you know, moving, moving like to a new place and getting settled in, in no new home. So a lot of, a lot of things going on. So even though we don't get to see like that time passing, it's, it's clear that there has been uh, some amount of, uh, of time passing. Um, and then of course we have the, the big introduction of, uh, of Stilgar who's, who's arriving. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with, with you, uh, Simon, what, what was your first reaction to seeing uh, the, that character? 
Javier Bardem owns that scene. As soon as he walks in with that cape and the spit, <laughs> let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And just, I love also that Josh Brolin as Gurney's like, I don't like him right away. <laughs> so if, if you know what happens later on, you know why that's funny. And it's just, Javier Bardem's probably in that scene for what, maybe a minute, if that, but brings such presence that you can tell he is the leader of the Fremens. He is someone that is respected. It's just a great scene. And I wonder if the spitting with uh, Duncan and Leto was improvised. Because I feel like Stilgard coming in is so crucial for people that don't know about water and how important water is. When you know the movie came out, I was talking to one of my friends in France. And he's like, something you're going to notice is water. Water is super important. Going back to last week, Paul touching the water on Caledon, the spit also. So I don't think that was uh, improvised. You guys correct me uh, who have the book fresh on your mind. This is taken from the book, the the spitting. Um, I don't know if it's in this interaction, though. So I'm wondering if this is Denis kind of combining some elements. I think it is. Well, that's, that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier is the scene where they're in the meeting, that is more... So in the book, I think they're all in there and then Stilgar comes in and Duncan and they do the spitting. Whereas in the movie, they start out in the meeting with all of them and then they go out and then they come back in and then it's not everyone in the same room. It's a different room and it's just the core characters. I think I haven't read the book in a few years, but I think that's what it is. Um, But yeah, the spitting thing is... It's it's great. I mean, it's probably the funniest part of the movie. <laughs> like every time I've seen it in the theater, like it gets a good laugh, which is great. And uh, and all speaking of humor, I, I wanted to backtrack real quick to kind of two things. But I loved the sight gag of the silos <laughs> on the tarmac because when you're walking up, you're like, oh, the Harkonnen, the Harkonnens have only left us. You know, that's what he says. Oh, they haven't left us much. It's just a disaster with the supplies. And they walk up and you see these silos, like they're just huge and they're covering the entire back of the frame. And then it pulls out and there's like all these dozens and dozens of empty that were silos should be presumably and the Harkonnens either destroyed them or took them with them or something. And there's like a few. So I guess they have to either buy some new silos or make new silos. I don't know. Uh, that, that just always makes me laugh because it just looks so pathetic and uh, it's such a, like a petty thing. And then, of course, uh, when Duncan hops out and and Simon pointed out the funny back and forth where they're talking about Paul getting taller and Duncan smelling worse. Well, if you've read the book, then you know why he smells so bad is because he probably hasn't bathed, you know, at least maybe properly like he's used to since he got to Arrakis, essentially. And he's been living in the still suit as well for almost all that time, I I would assume. So um yeah there is a there's an odor of sorts <laughs> inside this in the, inside the sieges and um i just thought that was kind of like a tiny little funny allusion to that but yeah i love the the, the spitting thing is just as as you guys pointed out javier bardem crushes it i mean he is a it, it totally fits what jason momoa described he said this was his favorite part of making the movie because he's in there with all these other actors that he really admires and you know jason momoa i mean he's not in it you know, Academy nominated actor, Academy nominated winning, you know, actor like some of these other people in the scene, but he does a really great job with Duncan Idaho. And I, he certainly holds his own in the room and with the character and the material he's given. Um, but he describes when Javier Bardem comes in, he's like, he says he comes walking in like Mick Jagger, like a rock star. Like he does, and he does have like a strut, like the way he's coming across the room and he's like sticking this Chris knife into his uh, waist and, it just it's great and it, i think it's a it's such a good introduction and it really leaves you wanting to see more of that character because and we all know he's going to be a, a much bigger character in the second movie and potentially you know what else might happen in different projects so i i really can't wait to see more of that character uh stillgar's huge and javier bardem just adds so much you know gravitas to it i think even more than is in the book potentially because he just has that personality to him so uh, it's just it's great I, one of my favorite scenes for sure and because it does stick so closely to what is in the book you know i really like the way denis allowed 
Jason Momoa to react to uh, to Javier Bardem's spitting in a funny way because Denis could have directed that to be ultra serious and mm-hmm. you know like like Jason Momoa is being all like you know oh no sir we you know we're responding <laughs> to your offering of water you know but he allowed him to do it in a funny way and the more times I've watched it the more times <laughs> I laugh at that scene so but I agree with with all three of you that uh, Javier Bardem I mean talk about presence and making me want to know more about these Fremen and then feeling like the Fremen are powerful. I mean, it's like, it's like Stilgar walks in and it's like desert power impersonated, you know, it's just like, it becomes real to me. And uh, anyway, I just, I, I agree with you guys on those performances. You know, when Stilgar is making these claims and saying, you know, you're in the wrong here, Paul says, you're right. He says, you know, he basically says, I agree with you. I, you know, I'm kind of, he's not at odds with his father, but he, he kind of sees both sides of it. And right after he says that you see from across Duncan Idaho kind of looks over at Paul, like after he says that, and it's kind of like thinking like, Hmm, like, like he, you know, and he just spent all this time with the Fremen. So it's kind of like, Oh wow. He just kind of said that almost at odds with his, his, you know, the Duke. Um, and then of course, you know, as you mentioned, when he walks out and there's that little back and forth between Paul, it's great. And a lot of people, I don't know if people realize this, but, Paul doesn't know what they're saying. Like this is, this happens a couple of times. And at least to my knowledge, he doesn't understand, you know, they're saying it because they know that he doesn't really, he's not going to comprehend what's going on. We, we're going to talk about it later, but Lee at kind says something else where it's not exactly clear. It's clear to us that she's picking up on something, but it's not really to the other characters. What one of the overall takeaways of, of, of the scene is, of course, this, this is, uh, you know, as we mentioned, this is a story that is happening, you know, tens of thousands a year of the future. But at the same time, this scene is so relatable to today, just in the fact of like two cultures meeting each other, like two very different cultures and, you know, trying to find that that understanding. And you can see that, like, if, you know, you're, you're, you're meeting for someone from a different culture, if you put in the, the effort and try to find that the connection it is possible. So I think that this, this scene says a lot. And uh, I don't know, like, like whether you've had experience of, of living in multiple different countries or traveling in certain regions, you know, how like there, that there's small, like traditions, uh, gestures that you have to uh, pay attention to. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I could re- really re- resonate with, with me in the, in, the, in the scene about, you know, like both trying to understand, okay, like I want to show that I'm strong, but at the same time, I want to show that I'm respecting the other party and, and, meeting them and finding that that understanding so i thought that this was uh, really well done in the, in the scene then we have um a quick scene where uh where they're, they're talking with the with the soldiers and duncan shows off some of the, the gadgets that that he's gotten from the from the fremen so not only talking about the still sword but, but the sand compactor and they joke about how he's he's gone uh, gone native and he also talks about how he he likes the fremen they're they're fierce but uh, but loyal uh, so, so that's uh, that's going to be uh, important l- later on, um, and then of course we we have the the, the scene where you know that like Duke Leto wants to see uh, the spice harvesting, so that that starts where uh, you know they, they plan okay let, let's let's go and see the, see the harvesters, and then they they, they meet uh, Leot Kynes for the first time. So um, Johnny, I'll, I'll start with you. What what did you make of the the scene where where they first meet the uh, Judge of the Change? Again, another moment in a scene that is very uh, essentially straight out of the book verbatim, uh, for the most part, at least, where explaining what the still suit is. And it, and again, this is a great example of exposition being fed to us, but in a way that doesn't feel too, you know, unwieldy and gross and, and like in our face about it. It is like, OK, yeah. It, they need to know about these still suits. And this is someone who is very familiar with them. It maybe has helped, you know, manufacture them before and is familiar with the Fremen way of life. And now she is making sure that they fit well and that this, this thing does this. So you should know that. And, and, all, and we should know that. And the way the camera kind of works around as she's going from the Duke to Gurney. And, and then of course, there's also kind of that element really just emphasizing once again, that there is a lot of tension and danger in the, in the, Atreides house at the moment because as soon as they walk up and she comes to help them they're like ready to cut her head off because they're just so on edge about everything and then as I mentioned previously she goes to check Paul and straight out of the book 
his still suit is perfectly fitted. It's like he's done it all his life, like he's born to do it. And she has that little moment where it's internal monologue, uh, you know, narration in the, the book. But in this, it's it's done so well where it's just like kind of kind of like when you realize something, you just say under your breath, like off to the side, like a throwaway thing. But it's what we know she is thinking. So it, it just really works well and it doesn't feel awkward. Like it feels natural. And I thought that was great. And then it just kind of sets the tone. We heard earlier on through fear thinks that the, she might be a cent, you know, eccentric or something. And you kind of get that. Like there is a, a she's not a bland character like there's a little bit of odd personality to her uh and i think that 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 comes through in this scene and throughout the rest of her scenes in the movie i think this scene is super crucial for many reasons like we get our first real introduction to this still suit like johnny was saying also we get her personality instantly you know it's not spending like a good five minutes with her we know who she is she's all business and she's already seen something with Paul that is special. And like you said, it's like just thinking out loud. She's like, whoa, something's up with this kid. Like, how did he know how to do that? The other Easter egg with the subtitles is right before we see the characters, when you see the people in the, you know, fixing the ornithopter, someone's saying it's already 90 degrees out here. It'll be 140 by five o'clock. Let's hurry up, team. Kind of showing the weather. Really? Wow. Yeah, I thought that was super cool. It's something like that. I'm like, those are little touches that are just makes it special. <laughs> yeah. And um, I always forget her name, who plays Leah at time, but great performance and very like, this is who I am. I'm not here to mess around. I need you to pay attention because this is life or death out here. Sharon Duncan Brewster, she, she was really convincing in, in, in all our scenes. And I, going back to that point about both Stilgar and uh, now Liet Kynes, they, they've made this comment, uh, you know, basically they're, they're seeing something special in, in Paul, like, I recognize you, or like, you'll, you'll know him, like, uh, as, because he knows your ways as if he was born to them. And um, th this just shows, like, that, that conversation that uh, Paul and Jessica were having, like, at the, or much earlier in the, in the Ornithopter about the, the superstitions and, like, the benefit of prayer in the ways. Like this is not just something for the common people. This is like all the way at the top of the of the Fremen society that they have these these strong beliefs. So I thought that that, that was really important to, to take note of. You know, there's a, a scene you guys where they're uh, they're showing you know the it's like a compass that's been designed, almost like a clock kind of thing. And this scene at first, um, I didn't know if this scene was necessary. I, I kind of thought, is this just filler? I didn't know how I felt about it, but with subsequent viewings of this film, I felt like that was a nice quick little thing to again show that um, that Jason Momoa, you know, his Duncan Idaho is all in, right? You, you know, you've gone native, you know, what, what Gurney says to him. And I think that's important to establish that again. And then to even just show the sand compactor, which later becomes a, a device that gets them out of the, you know, out of the dune. So, um, I, I think I've come to realize that when you're writing a script, sometimes you do have to have these scenes that kind of help you establish just a couple of items, even though, you know, maybe you could have done without it, but, but now I'm glad that, that it was in there. And then I just want to underscore what you guys all said about, uh, about Liet, uh, Sharon Duncan Brewster. I love her performance. I don't know what it is that she's doing with her, her eyes and, and her movements and her voice, but it just, I, I actually used to love the 1984 version of this scene. It, it, it's not as grand and it doesn't have a cool ornithopter to the side, but <laughs> I actually really did like that scene from Lynch's, but Sharon Duncan Brewster just blew it away with this performance. I don't know what it is that she's doing exactly, but she comes across so real and so sincere, but then you can see in her eyes that she's seeing something in Paul and it's, you know, there, she does say some words, but it's almost just in the way she moves. And so couldn't be a bigger fan of her in this, in this scene as Liet. So um, yeah, this is a fun scene. And of course, you know, you got the, the ornithopter just right there, you know, you can see the wings folded and it's just totally cool, but it's a great scene. I love it. Yeah. Real, real quick. I was going to say uh, 
to both your points, yeah, there's that huge ornithopter there. And then there's the, apparently there's dialogue between those characters uh, that you caught on the subtitles. I was gonna, just going to mention though, in that scene, like I loved that, those little touches where they're working on the ornithopter and there's these other soldiers and there's soldiers in the background and off to the side. And it's also like this open hangar. So you can see across the, the entire city, it seems like. It just feel it just all those little details makes it feel so much more real and like it's not just a set they're walking on to and okay here's the five people in the scene and then there's the you know a prop ornithopter and then there's a green screen and all that the lighting everything about it just really works yeah and then we get the the scene that we talked about uh obviously way, way back in summer when we when we saw the imax uh, preview of the of the two scenes which was the, the spice harvester scene so they fly out to the to the desert we got a, a lot of understanding about you know the the importance of the of the spice mining uh, that the worm uh, always uh, always shows up and we have that whole sequence which is one of the tense moments of the se- of the movie uh, so let's do a round table key, key takeaways from that that scene overall not uh, not, not going until the uh, the scene after that uh, i'll start with you Karen. gosh uh, this is one of my favorite scenes of the whole film um, and I think you guys know where I'm going with this, but I'll, I'll try and spare you my ornithopter uh, spiel <laughs> again. But the, the the sound of this scene never ceases to grab my attention. I, the way the sound is designed in this scene, and granted, I saw it on an IMAX each time. And what I wasn't able to find out is if the IMAX theater I was watching it was the Dolby Atmos uh, sound system. I, I didn't know, and it didn't advertise that. But the way the space is created with sound and, and with, you know, not only the ornithopters, but you're also hearing, you know, with the, the, the movement of the worm through the sand, which almost feels like waves on the ocean almost. And, and just all of the, the, the chatter back and forth from Leah talking on, you know, the ornithopter uh, communication uh, lines and, and just, there's one scene though, that just, always stands out to me and it's a it's a scene where the camera is right behind Leto and it pans all the way from the right and you see one of the spotter aircraft go all the way across his field of vision and the camera pans all the way across and then you see the worm coming and then the camera pans all the way back again and there's no cut and so you literally feel like you're on the ornithopter you know 100 200 feet off the ground and i just love that scene every time because it feels just so real vilna for example like if he wins the oscar or something for best director like which is is possible this will be one of the big scenes i feel like they're gonna look back and be like that was why he won because there's so many things happening and it's all as you mentioned so well realized and it feels so real and tactile i mean there's I mean, think about all the moving parts and elements that work in this scene together so fluidly and so and feels so properly in place. You have this huge CG oh, spice harvester, and then you have them in these, you know, the CG thopters, at least from the outside. And then they're inside, you're inside the thopter moving from face to face, and you're in the front of it, and you're in the back of it. And it's, I mean, and they're filming inside the ornithopter. They're filming like on some hill in Budapest. And they have this like crazy setup and it's just kind of pivoting around to get the lighting and the colors right. And then they're out in, uh, I guess, either Jordan or, or the UAE. And they're filming them getting out of the thopter on the ground in the sand. They're running up to the harvester. They have a huge, you know, uh, one of the treads for them to use practically. You have the people climbing out of it. Then, of course, you have the worm, which is just like, you know what this scene reminds me a lot of? I'm surprised I haven't seen this comparison made yet. But it reminds me of the uh, the waves scene from Interstellar, for anyone who's seen that movie. It has, it's just like you're showing up in this alien environment and you have no idea really what to expect. You think, I mean, you have an, some idea of what to expect, but it, it really, what ends up happening completely kind of shatters your expectation and there's just like this ticking clock element and you're so terrified. Like, of, of course you feel at least the main characters are going to get out of this unscathed, but you're like, you're still on the edge of your seat because it's just that 
real. It feels that real. The effects of the sand has been mentioned before, but like, again, talking about VFX, this is, I mean, it's a shoe in to win it, but the sand and the way the sand moves is so unreal. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> uh, it, it is like water. It's like waves washing across and it's so fluid. Um, it's just amazing. And then the, the editing and the music and Hans Zimmer's score is one of my favorite tracks out of the whole thing. And, uh, and all this combines within the world of Dune. I mean, it's perfectly true to the world of Dune as far as the designs and the feel and everything. But with regards to the spice and how it's introduced to the story and Paul's powers and his visions and how it's all set up and orchestrated so that, and this is something I mentioned earlier a few weeks ago before Garen got to see it, I think. And I was talking about, it. I didn't want to spoil it, but he, you know, you're wondering, so maybe he's having some sort of vision or, you know, he's, he's kind of tripping out, but you don't get to see what is going on. You hear some of it, you get like the Bene Gesserit, whispering uh towards the beginning after it first hits him but it's not until after the scene where we find out oh my god this is what was going on this is what he was seeing and it perfectly lines up with all the the sight lines and and the shots that they had uh of paul on the ground in the sand it just it all comes together so well the the way that the sand rises up and they're sinking into it and um the, the the reveal of the worm again that's just it's so i mean it's gonna be an iconic moment an iconic shot for this franchise and just for i mean films of this decade blockbuster filmmaking in the last you know however many decades it, I, I mentioned this on twitter but it really also reminded me a lot of the t-rex reveal from jurassic park very much i mean this is probably the most spielbergian set piece denny's ever done it's i mean just huge in the effects and the, and the sound and the, and the music it just all comes together perfectly and every time i watch it at home and trust me i've i watched it a lot at home you know if my girlfriend's in the living room with me watching it and she's on her phone or whatever she stops and looks at this scene just because of the ornithopters and every time she's like those are so cool so by the way, I don't know, Garen, if you saw it, if it was on the Dune Reddit or Lego Reddit, but someone made some ornithopters out of Legos. <laughs> so, Lego, if you're listening, just saying. I know a couple of people on this show that would buy it. Um, what's great also explains how crucial timing is for them to get the spice and get out of there before it gets dangerous. Um Sure, it's the only thopters also, you know, but it also makes me think a lot of Top Gun in a way it is like they're out on their test run. They're on a mission. And this is where I fall in love with the Duke Leto every time because he is the people's Duke. Like he doesn't care about the spice. Cool. I saw how it gets collected, but my men are in danger. I need these people safe out of here fast. I mean, we can talk hours of just the visual effects and how beautiful it is. And Garen, I was watching that shot while Johnny was talking. It is super subtle, but it's such an amazing shot. Like, I've never noticed. And this is where Paul starts following the white rabbit, kind of, where everything starts going a little bit different for a little Paul Atreides. And I'm glad that you didn't spoil that for Garen. You know, the Thanks, voices... It. The voices are there. Um, it's also sound design, um, the editing, the cinematography. One simple thing that I love is the color correction on this. I would be curious to see what it looks like before they color corrected it. We talked about Lux last week, but I feel like this has its own Lux, especially when Paul gets the sand in his face. It looks super grainy and not in a bad way but it looks like the film is even a little bit more grainy to feel that spice it's one of probably the top 10 scenes in the book for me and also in this version IMAX right here this is why people should have gone to the theater and seen it just for the scale Simon to your uh, point about your girlfriend yeah when I saw this because the, the most recent time I saw it in theaters at my fifth time I finally took my girlfriend who oh that's sweet of you yeah <laughs> but we had read 
we had read together. I had already read the book once and we read pretty much up to the point where this movie stops. So she knew what was coming, but she was, I mean, she was hopping out of her seat. <laughs> like she was so into it and amazed. And I, I was so glad to see that because it really did live up to what you expected. And there's that moment. I mean, I get goosebumps probably every time I watch the sequence at one point or another, but the moment when the, worm like breaches through the sand for the first time and like the sound like the score like swells and you can even see the little spotter craft to kind of give it some scale like it's just uh and then the pre- the pressure at that point is really on them to like get the hell out of there um and as the score just you know revs up you know through the end of the sequence when they're trying to run away and they trip and they fall uh it, it's just it's so damn good it's it's probably it might be my favorite scene in the movie. I mean, it's just, it has kind of a little bit of everything and kind of really encompasses what I wanted to get out of the movie. Uh, and it's so funny because I remember Villeneuve last year, over a year ago, I think during the summer, was talking about how they released an image. The first image we saw, one of the first images we saw after the Vanity Fair piece was of them on the ramp. Um, and he, I remember him saying like, this is one of the scenes that I'm like most proud of already. Like, I think we really got it right. And you can certainly feel that uh, watching it. And I, I can certainly say that he definitely got it right. This might be one of the best scenes in cinema I've ever seen. I'm not just saying that because, you know, doing fanboy here, but just visually editing music performance. It's something I feel like kids should take a part in film school in like the next 20 years. And one of the most amazing things about this entire sequence, so, so much happens subconsciously. You could talk about the sequence for like 40 minutes probably. But what I'm getting at is that every single shot, every single moment building up throughout this, from as soon as you see them in the yard being, you know, having maintenance done and then it gets lifted up into the air, up until the worm shows up and eats it, everything is telling you, these harvesters are huge. <laughs> like if, if nothing else, understand how big these harvesters are. Look at them. Look at the people standing on them. Look at the aircraft that has to pick it up and the way it slowly lifts it up and can barely get it off the ground. Look at it next to these mountains as it's flying by. Look at the ornithopters, how tiny they are by comparison when they come in. And all of that is to say when this worm shows up <laughs> and actually eats it, uh you're just like holy like you understand there's no doubt about how huge mind mind-bogglingly big and powerful and dangerous the worms are and so to introduce it in that way which is how they're introduced in the book really and nailing that feeling that you're giving the reader or the viewer that's i think it was again couldn't have asked for it to be better it really stood out was uh that a parallel to earlier on, like when, when Paul makes that first step on, on the sand, it's like almost a magical moment. And then he, he like picks up the sand and you remember when he was in Caledon and, and picking up the water and, you know, you really feel that this is the beginning of a journey. And, and that moment when the spice hits him again, it's like, you know, there's, there's some, uh, some magic going on. And uh, like, as you mentioned earlier, Johnny, about like the, the, the editing, I think they made a good choice not to show the visions here because you're, you're like left wondering, you know, what's, what's going on. And the, so we're gonna uh, get into that now. Uh, so basically, after after that 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 scene, which there's so much to talk about, just in, in that scene, we we go back to um, uh, to to the to Arkeen, and on the landing fold, we have like a couple of like uh, qu- quick uh, moments, but but that are important. Basically, uh, like uh, Duke Leto is reprimanding his son for for taking those those risks. And you have uh, Liet Kynes, who she, she's basically saying how she, you know, she, she can't play a role in here. She, she, she's an impartial observer. And you really feel that Duke Leto already has a sense of, you know, okay, like how drastic the situation currently is. Because he, he knew that, you know, they're, they're, they're in trouble. But now he realizes, like, the, the, the death of the situation that, that, that they're in. And it's going to be really difficult to, you know, get the spice production on track. And, you know, they... they could have sabotage. They could be a, a, a tax. So all these things are are racing through his mind. Uh, but then we get, of course, to the scene where where we have Doctor Yu. He's, he's checking on on Paul, and he talks about how how spice is a psychoactive chemical, and Paul is sensitive to that. And then Paul reveals that he he was having those visions, like not dreams anymore, but actual visions while while he was uh, awake. 
So uh, let me start with, with you, Garen. Uh, what did you think about that dream sequence? So I, I just want to hearken back to the moment uh, that you mentioned, Marcus, when, when, when Paul steps his first foot onto the sand and there's, there's this, you know, this kind of big booming sound. And, and then the moment when there, there's, a, there's a big sort of gust coming and, and it hits him and all the sound, I'm kind of into the sound, as you can tell, the sound goes quiet and all you hear is the tinkling of the spice. And I love that moment because, because then in the moment you're talking about, Marcus, where, where uh, with Dr. Yui and he reveals the fact that he was having waking dreams, it, it reveals to me that that's what was happening in that moment when, that, when the spice was, was hitting him for the first time in, in a big way. So, um, yeah, I, I, I love the way they've developed Paul's prescient abilities. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, one level of understanding and then another and then another and then another. And, and I like how that progression happens. So, um, yeah, I like how subtle it is. Again, I know I, I always do this comparison to Lynch's movie, but Lynch's prescient dream stuff was so in your face. It was just so almost overwhelming to you. And I love how Denis is allowing us to learn and adapt and kind of become more comfortable with this idea that, that Paul can see the future. And he's learning how to see the future. He's not only always getting it right, but he's, he's learning this skill. So I love that. Yeah, and then of course you have the... The, the moment where you understand, you know, like why Paul is actually kneeling on the ground because, you know, like you had the, the, the scene with, uh, you know, you know, he's, he's meeting Chani and then he's kissing her and then suddenly he's, he's being killed by her and like, you know, he's confused and like he actually felt that it was like such a vivid experience uh, to him that he was like basically on, on, on the, kneeled on the ground in a state of, of shock uh, in, in a way. So I thought that that was really powerful uh, how, how he saw that. And then the, one of the, the vision moments you see basically the first appearance of the the Chris knife. Uh, you see the Chris knife in a sheath, and that's the first of many appearances that we're, we're going to see of the, uh, of that knife. Uh, so we're going to see how how that becomes uh, important, and it's like it's like a constant in in all of these visions. And he's talking about how how someone is is going to hand him um, hand him the the blade. You know what's interesting about watching it maybe ten times now. <laughs> um, thank you, HBO Max, once again. I'll miss you in a couple of weeks. Um, Johnny and Paul never kiss. There is no lips on lips action whatsoever. It's cut so well that you think in your head, the headcanon, that they do kiss at one point, but they never do. You know, waiting for that vision to come up because, of course, it's kind of famously put in the trailers because it really drive home the, the Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya fans. But, like, as soon as they're coming in to kiss, like it pretty much cuts to the opposite side and you immediately see, oh, crap, something just happened. And then, of course, you look down, you see the knife has been indeed driven into to Paul. So, yeah, I thought that was an interesting, like fun little choice that uh, well, kind of it also kind of builds up, though, this feeling, this foreboding feeling, because now, you know, OK, well, what the hell is that supposed to be? <laughs> like you don't really if you've never read the book if you have no idea you don't know how to interpret that um other than okay i guess you know she she's a fremen obviously but what's the relationship going to be is it going to be actually like full-blown antagonistic are they going to be like kind of enemies or are they going to be something else they can be friends lovers what is what's the dynamic and so i think that that builds up that tension and i think that's gonna be interesting to watch release you kind of get an idea of what's gonna happen uh, at the end of the movie with the way the movie ends but we haven't really seen them in interact in a genuine you know physical way she you know we have things happen towards the end with the chris knife and whatnot but i think that'll be a big kind of payoff and at least towards i would imagine the beginning of part two where that relationship is going to start to be cemented yeah, she doesn't care about him one bit in this movie. She's annoyed by him, and we'll talk more about it when she shows up. But yeah, if you listen to her dialogue, she <laughs> is not a fan. No. 
Yeah, and then the the big reveal here was that uh, you know, of course, we we saw in, in the vision that the stunning imagery of of Lady Jessica, you know, like kneeling, and this probably one of the ceremonies potentially the, the water of of Lysine or, or or something another uh, major ceremony, and then there's the reveal that uh, Paul knows that uh, that she's pregnant, and uh, here here we have that that connection of of the timeline. So remember, like what, before they left uh, to to Arrakis, uh, like the Duncan went uh, two weeks ahead. And then, um, then when uh, Duncan and Paul hug, and then he talks about he's he's been in the in the living with famine for four weeks, and here Jessica's like she's she started like how can you know that I barely know that it's it's only been uh, a couple of weeks. So th this likely infers that you know like it was uh, you know when when they arrived at uh, on Arrakis like in the, in that early early time that was the, was a conception and. Now, as a, again, again, you understand the abilities of Bene Gesserit because this is just a few weeks and Jessica already knows. But, you know, like it's, it's just amazing that, you know, she started like, how can Paul know? So it's uh, yeah, re re really, uh, really amazing reveal. And that, that imagery of, of her is just just stunning. People who came out of this movie loving Lady Jessica and Rebecca Ferguson's performance. I think that's probably been the most talked about performance of the movie. And it's just it's so fun to think about the fact that you know, for people who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with this whole story, I mean, she just gets more badass and more powerful and respected. Like, yeah, you're in for a treat, I think, if you're a fan of that character, because she's going to go in some interesting directions. And uh, as a as a mother uh, to Paul, as a mother to the, you know, soon to be child that she's, you know, bearing right now. It's going to be it's going to be really interesting. I'm super curious. And I think that was a great I remember I knew I knew that she I of course I know she's going to have a baby because I've read the book, but like I wasn't sure if they were going to reveal that in this in this movie. I genuinely didn't. That was one of the few I guess true surprises. And so when they showed that, like it cuts to her in inside and she has the the mentat mark on her lip. She has the blue eyes. Uh, you know, the eyes of the Abad. So there's a lot of changes she's going through uh, as a person. And then there's a cuts to that other, that other image and she has the baby. And I'm just like, holy, like, and, and then Paul, of course, says, I know you're pregnant. And like, I like gasped the first time I, <laughs> I was watching the movie. <laughs> I like gasped out loud and I was just like, whoa, like, I'm so like, I thought it was great. I think that was a great thing to reveal. Um, cause now that's going to be in everyone's minds and everyone's going to be thinking, well, what's that going to be? Is it going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? What's the relationship going to be like? How's that going to factor into the story? And of course it factors into the story in many interesting ways, uh, down the line, especially. So I thought it was great. That's what, again, one of just one of my other favorite moments that was kind of a surprise and, and very, very fun as a book reader, especially. You know, I had the exact same reaction, Johnny. And had this scene where we see her baby, had, had that not been in there, I think it really would have bothered me because completely leaving out the fact that Jessica is going to have, have a child and having read all the books, that becomes extremely significant, right? And, and so to just briefly see this cute little baby, and I saw someone on Twitter say they didn't know if that was CGI or, I mean, it looks like a real baby, but the little baby smiles and looks up and it's kind of a, an iconic scene, but the fact that the baby's there and then that's all you get that she's going to have a baby. Then Paul confirms it by telling her as a book reader, as a fan of the, of the, of the whole series, I was just like, yes, that's awesome. You know, cause I know who that is and I know what that person's going to do. So it's just cool that they included that even just a brief moment. And then we uh, we journey to the fourth uh, world that we've we've got to see uh, in this in this movie, and that's uh, Seleucus Secundus, which is the the home world of of the Sardaukar. And um, if if you have read the book or like read some of the the lore, that you know that this is also a very harsh planet that that has brought forth some of the most feared warriors in in the Pyrim. Uh, starting with with you, Simon, uh, what, what what did you take away from the from the Sardaukar home planet? I don't want to hang out there. I'm I'm afraid of that planet. Like Giddy Prime has its own fear, but this is military, like Roman 300. Like I said in my review of Blood of the Saddle Card, the comic, it's insane. It is war. It is hate. It is everything that is dark 
And I've heard they actually like had to recut the scene because it was even more graphic. And that weird chanting is so weird and bizarre. I love that the Sadakars get their own language also, which is the language that we hear in the beginning of the movie, which is interesting. Still not sure why the Sadakars were it and not like a navigator or something in the long run. And Piter, his eyes just speak volume when he's talking to the general. And the rain is such a total opposite that we've been at for a good 20, 30 minutes of the movie, dry, humid weather, and now just the rain soaking blood. It's beautiful. I love it. But I don't want to be there. It's great seeing it and seeing where they come from. Because you can like say like, hey, they come from this harsh environment. It's like really hard on them growing up and being trained. But seeing that, you're like, whoa, this is like extreme bad, unconditional weather. Also, you know, everyone says that the heat is bad, but cold, like on what you see right here, is dangerous. And it makes them for the well, the second best fighters in the Imperium. We'll find out soon enough who the number one fighters are. So this is one scene, you guys, where I actually think Denis could have given us just a little bit more because these these guys are the they're the ultimate death squad of the universe, right? I mean, these guys are trained from birth to just be ruthless killers, be able to survive any environment, no matter how harsh it is. And, and I get that there was a decision made probably between Joe Walker and Denis to just, we're only going to spend this much time. And, and there is the conversation between Piter and the, and the Legion leader, but to, to just show you know, the people uh, being tortured and, and their blood's flowing down and then it's being wiped, you know, on kind of a symbolic ceremony to the, to the warriors. I, I get that that makes them truly sinister and evil, but the Solicis Secundus is, has this whole backstory and it has kind of this whole mythology around it. And I, I guess I wanted just a little bit more about this because then it makes what happens later in the story all that more implausible. So um, it's, it's, it's a great scene. It's beautifully cut. Uh, the imagery is great. I just wanted a little bit more ruthlessness to know that these guys are the ultimate killers. And they're not just stupid, crazy killers. They're, they're skilled and they're, they're, they're fearless. And, and so I just wish there would have been a little, little bit more on that. Yeah, I thought uh, I'd be curious to, to hear what you what you're referring to. You're kind of alluding to something. I think I think I know what you're talking about. But it uh, I loved one of my favorite things about this actually heading into the sequence is that it it's like the establishing shot that they do where it's like the top of, of like these mountains or hills, and uh, it's like you just it's like this very quiet moment where it's just you can you can kind of hear something off in the distance. You're not really sure. And then the, the letters pop up and you, you get the inner title where it explains what the hell this place is. So it, clearly they, they did something right because they, they managed to catch in just a short, very tiny amount of time, the emperor's soldiers, what the hell they're, you know, th what they can be expected to be like based on their ceremony, based on uh, the, where they live, where they operate. So I wasn't expecting to see a lot of this. I figured that it would be just this one scene. I didn't know how long it would be. I knew Pyre would be there. I knew that they'd be having this kind of exchange. And uh, I, th I thought it was effective. It wasn't, uh, you know, what could I, I mean, I guess to, to Garen's point, I mean, I could have gone for more length in any scene potentially just because I love, I, could, I mean, just show me everything. But um I, I thought that it was effective in getting it kind of in there. Okay, this is what they look like. This is what the hell they're doing. I mean, look at how like dastardly they are with this weird ritual, this blood sacrifice thing that's going on. And then of course, Piter. I mean, you can tell even Piter is kind of like uncomfortable or kind of off put. And he's like just the most like psychotic uh killer torturer in the you know in the imperium so 
that's one thing we'll talk about more as we get into the movie is the starter car. They live up to the billing, I would have to say. I mean, these are not stormtroopers by any stretch of the imagination. And that's a good thing. I think if they had, they had to do something right in that regard and they, they did that. Um, and of course that helps seeing how badass and kind of terrifying they are also helps with that distinction between the Harkonnens as warriors, the Atreides as warriors, and then the Fremen as warriors, as well as individual badasses like Duncan Idaho, for example. Yeah, and, and that's that's an important point because these aren't just like blank, uh, like shock troopers with no personality and like only like discipline. But, uh, you know, they, they have this whole warrior religion thing thing going. N not only are they trained from from birth, but they have like this this belief in whatever it was. Maybe we'll, we'll find out uh, uh, more about that that later. But these are like really like they, they have the, the skills and they have like the belief that, that what what they're doing, that they're unstoppable. So it's a, it's a really dangerous combination. One thing I loved about the starter car, what they did, because they could have done any design for the starter car. I think that was one thing a lot of people were looking forward to, fans of the book, at least to see how they were going to depict them. And some some concept art came up recently, I think in the last week or so, of different designs for, for the Sardaukar. And this design is the only one. I, I really liked some of the other ones. I liked the aesthetic. But this was the only one where you can see their faces inside the, the suit. I think that is a really important point because, again, you know, especially if we're comparing to Stormtroopers, for example, as Imperial soldiers, they are not faceless, you know, non-human things. You know, they're actual human beings in there um, that have been warped and mangled and mutilated to the point of maybe losing all humanity. But they are functional in that same way as any of the other soldiers they are fighting. Um, I think that was a really important point. So I'm super glad they went with that design where you can see the face as much as I love a really badass helmet, you know, Darth Vader or whatever else there, there is. I just, I thought that was the right way to go. And I think that adds a little bit of extra character to them and distinguishes them a little bit. And as far as the color of their uniforms as well, it's like kind of like a white gray, like it's kind of a muddled white. And uh, of course, seeing their planet, you can understand maybe why it's that color, but I thought that was great too because the other costume concepts were like red like a dark red and then like navy and some other things and i thought that was great because it distinguishes them pretty well from the other factions but also the blood and the dirt that accumulates on their uniforms throughout the movie um i thought that adds again a little bit of extra texture to them as a as fighters i think you after a day of fighting, they're just covered in blood and have been killing so many people and are so, you know, no one can really touch them outside of a handful of, of people. So I thought, again, that was a really great, I really just liked the aesthetics that they went with for the starter car. You know, as much as a Star Wars fanboy I am, especially, I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but I love the prequels. I love clones. I love clone technology. I've always been obsessed with clones. Interesting that Duncan might be one of my favorite characters. Um, but I was like, that scene in Attack of the Clones, when we see, you know, the clone army getting ready, I was like, now that looks like crap compared to this. I was like, this is a real army. This is an army of, like we've been saying, not, you know, clones, they actually have a face. They have personalities, you know. If you read The Blood of the Sadakar and another one shot that's coming out, we're going to find out more about these characters and where they come from. One of my absolute favorite shots, though, of the movie is the pan shot when we see one of the clones. I was going to say one of the clones, one of the <laughs> Sadakars, actually with like the weird kind of bubbly space helmet, just full rain. Just like, I am here. Don't F with me. I am ready to fight. You know, I love that shot. That is one of my favorite shots of the movie. That that's one of my favorite shots as well, Simon. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I mean it's a it's a perfect shot. But technically speaking, but uh, part of the design as well, going back to how they design them, their helmets are like it's animalistic. Like they're it's like they have mm -hmm. a they're around their mouth at least. It's like a maw of like an animal or like a, an insect or a bug. And so it, it adds, again, it's not just a blank bubble. Like, it's just not nothing but plastic or glass or whatever. It's actual some sort of respirator, probably. And then it, the way that it's shaped 
it just it adds a little extra something like I was mentioning earlier. Okay, that's uh, all for this week. So uh, we're going to continue uh, with our um, scene by scene review next week, uh, returning to uh, to Arrakis. And of course, we're going to have the, the whole uh, attack and what happens beyond that. So uh, yeah, really excited to, to break down those uh, upcoming scenes as, as well with, with all of you. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Simon. Where can people find you? You can find me on social at S Dowdy, um, just my first initial, last name. Thank you, everyone that listens, watches. Um, I'm going to read that jerk again. Please like and subscribe. <laughs> and give us a thumbs up. Yeah, Johnny Sobchak here. Thank you all for tuning in once again. It, you know, we are slowly but surely making our way through the movie. And there's a lot to talk about. We've all seen it many times at this point. And you probably have as well. So I'm having a blast uh, digging into it and kind of remembering different things and, and picking on some of my favorites. So uh, find me on Twitter and uh yeah tune in next week this is garen uh, on twitter at dune companion um i just i love talking to these guys because i always think i go way deep and they always figure out a way to go deeper than me and see things i didn't see so <laughs> i'm loving it and this is uh marcus uh, gabriel also wanted to thank like uh yeah i get often people who, who reach out to me and and tell me how 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 they're enjoying what we've done with the with the website and uh, and with the show and that's that's of course a hard work from from everybody here and some some other other writers as well uh so yeah we we, we really love what we're, what we're doing but it's uh, we always appreciate to, to hear from all of you uh so yeah looking forward to uh talking with you all next week we hope you've enjoyed dune talk remember to like subscribe and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds be the first to hear breaking news and reviews